Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called God Meant It for Good. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August 13, 2017. In his book, Not in God's Name, from the year 2015, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs locates the origins of religious violence in sibling rivalry and mimetic desire. Sibling rivalry, he says, is the most primal form of violence and the dominant theme of the book of Genesis. In sibling rivalry, we desire what other people have. We become rivals for it, and then we fight to get it. In what we wrongly think, is a zero-sum game. The stories in Genesis are familiar to those who know their Bibles, and Sachs offers interpretations in which sibling rivalry is revealed for what it is, and then subsequently subverted. For example, with Isaac and Ishmael, we learn that God chooses Isaac, but he doesn't reject Israel, uh, Ishmael. In the story of Jacob and Esau, there's the refutation of sibling rivalry in the Bible. Recall how Jacob returned the blessing that he stole from his blind father Isaac to Esau. Rachel and Leah exemplify the rejection of rejection. Sibling rivalry is natural, says Sachs, but it's not inevitable. That brings us to the reading for this week about Joseph. The rivalry between Joseph and his brothers who tried to kill him takes up a third of the book of Genesis. In the end, the victim forgives and the perpetrators repent. The Joseph story in Genesis chapters 37 to 50 begins when he is 17 years old and ends with his death in Egypt at the age of 110. That's 93 long years exiled from his family and his place of birth. The story features three sets of dreams, all of which are construed as divine messages. Joseph had two dreams as a teenager, one about sheaves of grain and another about the stars in the sky both of them foretold of sibling rivalry, that he would rule over his older brothers. The next four dreams feature Joseph as the interpreter of dreams, although he insists that it's not him, but God alone who gives the interpretation. He deciphers a good dream by the cupbearer, and then a very bad dream by the baker. He then interprets Pharaoh's two dreams about future years of feast and famine. These six dreams turn Joseph's life into a living nightmare. Some of the deepest hurts that we experience come from our own families, and often through no fault of our own. Such was the case with Joseph. His brothers resented their father's favoritism epitomized in his coat of many colors that privileged him above them. So they sold Joseph to Midianite merchants, perhaps slave traders, 
who in turn sold him to an Egyptian official named Potiphar. This began 13 years of slavery and imprisonment for Joseph. He was later tempted and falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. Languishing in prison for crimes he did not commit, he was forgotten by the cupbearer who had gained his own freedom thanks to Joseph. As history unfolded, though, roles were reversed. Joseph's brothers and family became beggars in a famine, whereas he was elevated to Pharaoh's second-in-command. When their fratricide was exposed, the brothers rightly expected retaliation. But in contrast to his brothers who tried to kill him out of jealousy, Joseph forgave his brothers out of a sense of God's providence. It's no wonder that this week's Psalm 105 honors Joseph. He believed that God had a providential purpose in the wrongs that he had suffered, namely to preserve a remnant that will fulfill the promise of Abraham. Don't be afraid, Joseph assured his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. At least four different times, Joseph reassures his nervous brothers that, quote, it was not you who sent me to Egypt, but God, end quote. It's a radical idea that nothing I experience happens without divine design. In the words of the song, Like a River Glorious, by Francis Ridley Havergal, every joy or sorrow falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. The Joseph story shows how God uses our worst sins, sufferings, and failures in redemptive ways. Many have observed how God brings good out of evil. St. Augustine wrote, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than to allow no evil to exist. The contemporary Frederick Buechner writes, Sin itself can be a means of grace. Back in the 15th century, Julian of Norwich once said that sin will be no shame but an honor. Anthony DeMello writes that repentance reaches fullness when you are brought to gratitude for your sins. And finally, Thomas Aquinas gave us the startling phrase, O Felix Culpa, in reference to the fall of Adam. That is, O fortunate crime. The fall of Adam, with all its catastrophic consequences, triggered something far better and greater, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is dangerous territory. There's a thin and mysterious line between honoring God's providence and calling evil good. We should also be wary of enabling or excusing bad family behaviors like sibling rivalry instead of dealing with them. Nor should we ever turn our blind eye to injustice as if it didn't matter. 
Nevertheless, Joseph moves beyond these legitimate concerns and discerns a larger purpose of good in the evil that he suffered. Perhaps this is something that one can claim for yourself, but should never presume for another. I like how the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann acknowledges the evil in the world, but also expresses faith in God's greater providence. Consider his poem with the title, Dreams and Nightmares. It's from his book, Prayers for a Privileged People. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just. I dreamed of a garden of paradise, well-being all around, and a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for all those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children. I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars, great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty, for dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares, asking that your healing mercy should override threats, that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day. Dream us toward health and peace. We pray in the real name of Jesus, who exposes our fantasies. Our book this week is a review by Debbie Thomas, the title of the book, City of Tranquil Light. The author is Bo Caldwell, New York, Henry Holt and Company, 2010. This novel is 320 pages. Bo Caldwell's wise and beautiful novel is based on the lives of Caldwell's maternal grandparents who served as missionaries in China in the early 1900s. It opens in the 1960s with an elderly Will Keane reflecting on the decades he spent with his wife, Catherine, serving as Mu Shi, that is, shepherd teacher, in the remote city of Kuangping, Chen, the city of tranquil light. In prose that is quiet and luminous, Caldwell alternates between Will's memories and Catherine's real-time journal entries creating a narrative that braids several stories into one, the story of a marriage, the story of decades-long missionary endeavor, and the story of China's turbulent plunge into revolution. It's rare to read a contemporary novel that takes religious faith seriously, 
honoring its complexity without sinking into either sentimentality or cynicism. And this Caldwell succeeds utterly. The Mennonite faith that compels Will and Catherine to establish an outpost in rural China and offer medical and spiritual care to its people for many years is rendered honestly and with deep respect. But so are the beliefs and traditions of the people the Keens minister to and grow to love. Insofar as Will and Catherine learn as much from the villagers as they teach them, the novel highlights the quiet, triumphant power of mutual humility, mutual sacrifice, and mutual love. Meanwhile, the novel nicely captures the landscape and culture of pre-revolutionary China, complete with harrowing stories of bandits, famine, illness, and mass violence. Through it all, we get the steady drumbeat of Will and Catherine's marriage, its trials, its heartbreaks, its joys, its rewards. All in all, Caldwell's novel is a meditation on love, the kind of love that matures with the passing years and transcends the boundaries of time, race, culture, religion, memory, and even death. City of Tranquil Light. The author is Bo Caldwell. That's a book review by Debbie Thomas. For movies this week, I review a title called Blood on the Mountain from the year 2016. This 90-minute film documents the devastating consequences of 150 years of coal mining on the economy, the environment, and the human lives of West Virginia. Coal fired the American economy in the 1800s, but from the beginning this originated from the corporate control of everything by companies like Massey Energy and Union Carbide, the land, housing, stores, police, the government, like a governor who pleaded guilty to extortion and went to prison health care, even the written history of the region. Minor strikes, labor wars, and revolts are nothing new, as the archival footage of the 1920s show. Many hundreds of miners are buried in unmarked graves. Collective bargaining rights, minimum wage laws, worker safety, and child labor legislation all grew out of the conflicts of the coal industry. This film reminded me of the best-selling book about the Appalachian region, Hillbilly Elegy, by J.D. Vance. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title, Blood on the Mountain. And finally, for poetry this week, in keeping with Joseph's confidence in the providence of God, We've posted the covenant prayer of John Wesley. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. Here's his covenant prayer. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, 
or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 13th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.